0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scripture which you yourself have breathed out, making them profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Would you use your word for these purposes in our midst this morning, that we might be complete, equipped for every good work, for we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, page 796 in the Pew Bibles. So Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot. From Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people, for they, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty." Grain shall make the young man flourish, and new wine the young women. The prophet Zechariah lived and prophesied during a time of growing messianic expectation. God's people were dominated by a foreign empire, and that meant that they had no king of their own. But the Lord, through his prophets, had been foretelling little by little, one prophecy after another, that a new king in the line of David was coming. And as we study this book, we've already seen several prophecies of the coming Messiah. The shoot of David is coming. Now, in this passage this morning, we have another messianic prophecy. And perhaps you're somewhat familiar with the fulfillment of this prophecy in the triumphant infantry. Perhaps you've heard a sermon of this on Palm Sunday. Just like this year, I preached at Christmas time, I preached on several Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' birth in their original Old Testament context. So, also this morning, we get to see this prophecy in its original context. Usually on Palm Sunday, it's preached from Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, and you just get that little snippet, just the little bit of the verse that's quoted there. But here we get to see there's far more to the prophecy than the few lines that are quoted in the New Testament. It goes on all the way to the end of the chapter. It speaks not only of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but it speaks of his reign of peace, of his deliverance of the captives, of his advancing the kingdom, a coming feast and a final praise to the Lord as his people shine like jewels in a crown. And of course, Jesus he knew all this. He fulfills it all. But at the root of all these things is the king himself. And what stands out most of all is that he is a different kind of king. Not like the kings of other nations. Not what you would expect a king to be. Not a king riding proud on his charging warhorse coming to conquer, but rather a poor, even an afflicted king, riding a humble donkey and trusting in the Lord to deliver him. And yet even though he comes in humility, his reign of peace extends to the end of the earth and he sets his people free. He ultimately is the one who delivers the captives. He is the one who delivers you and me. Now, we know that this passage has already been fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the application for you is to rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, for behold, your king, not as it says, comes, but he has already come. And so that is the application this morning. And we'll see further applications as we take part in the ongoing advancement of his kingdom of peace. And we praise the Lord for his goodness and his beauty. So let's begin this morning looking at verse 9, and the passage, it starts out really with this rejoicing, this twice-repeated call to God's people in Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, shout aloud for the long-awaited coming of your king. And the Hebrew here, it's dramatic. Behold your king, behold your king, he comes to you. Just like we saw in chapter 6, behold a man, his name is shoot the shoot. After it calls us to rejoice because he is coming, there is a fourfold description of this coming king, and we want to work carefully through each of these descriptions. First, he is righteous, and this is an essential attribute for a true king, that he is one who keeps and upholds the law, one who walks in the ways of the Lord. Of course, he must be righteous himself if he is to rule over others in righteousness. This is how it's put in Psalm 72, the description of the ideal Israelite king. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And this lines up with also the prophecy of the coming branch in Jeremiah 23, five. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And of course, this is a perfect description of the one who fulfills this all, our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the perfect, sinless Son of God. It's only only because of his perfect righteousness that he is able to be the sinless sacrifice who bears the sins of his people on the cross. And so behold, your righteous king comes. Along with righteous, it also says here that the king is saved, it's a little difficult to understand what that means. So almost all the English translations, they massage the translation. The ESV here goes with having salvation. But the Hebrew is very simple. It's very clear. Righteous and saved is he. That's true. This translation is more difficult to understand. But we need to interpret what the, the words that God gives us here in the scripture not what we would like it to say. So let's consider what this means in the original context and then as it is fulfilled by Christ. When the Israelites originally asked God for a king, they asked for one who would go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they wanted, 1 Samuel eight twenty. They wanted a strong man, a king who would be their savior. But this deeply grieved the Lord. Because he was their king. He was their deliverer. And he said that they needed to trust him to fight their battles. The Lord warned them that they didn't really want what they were asking for. But as they continued to demand it, he gave in. He gave them Saul. And it was a disaster. It's true, Saul won many battles, but he was not Righteous, nor was he humble. And he did not obey the Lord, and his tale is a tragedy. What they really needed was a humble king who trusts in the Lord to fight Israel's battles, who trusts the Lord to save them. In other words, not primarily a savior, but a saved one. One who first and foremost knows that salvation is of the Lord. One good example of this is David's victory over Goliath. Now, certainly there was some wise strategy in David's victory over Goliath. But first and foremost, it was that David's faith and his trust was in the Lord and the Lord saved him. But then the result was that all Israel was saved as well. Now, how is this fulfilled in Jesus Christ? For, of course, you know, Jesus is our Savior in the active sense. But is he also one who receives salvation? He is that as well. For he is both God and man. And on the cross, he identifies himself with his people, with those who need and receive salvation. So he takes on himself the guilt and the shame of all our sins, and he bears the wrath of God that we deserve. He drinks it down to the dregs. He suffers, he dies, and only after he dies and he rests in the grave three days does the Father save him. He raises him up from death. And the New Testament almost always attributes the resurrection to the Father. God raised him up from the death. Occasionally, it also says, the Spirit raised him up. And so because he entrusted himself completely to the Father, he was saved through death itself. Now, it's true, we must also account for the fact that Jesus also said he had authority to lay down his life and take it up again. John ten eighteen. And so we might say in the mystery of the Trinity, Christ's resurrection is accomplished by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we know that Christ is our Savior. That's also clearly taught in the New Testament. He is the Savior and the Saved One. But to show, uh, what I want to show you this morning is that he fulfills this prophecy. The righteous and saved is he. He fulfills this prophecy in the literal translation, the king who fully entrusted himself to the Lord and is saved so that we might be saved in him. Third description here, he is humble. Now that's the way this word is usually translated here, but in most places in the Old Testament, it's translated poor or occasionally afflicted. Now, clearly humble, poor, afflicted. These are not the words you would usually choose to describe a king. And yet, this is how the coming Messiah is described here. It's just like Isaiah had prophesied about the suffering servant of the Lord who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we have been healed. Isaiah 53. And here it's the same thing that's in mind a king who is afflicted, who is who suffers for the people. And it's not hard to draw the connections to our Lord Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior. We also see his humility in his coming. As he says of his ministry, the Son of Man came not to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Matthew 2028 20, now this humble, poor, afflicted savior also lines up with the fourth description here that he comes riding on a donkey. I've heard some preachers say that a donkey was a royal animal. It was an honor for kings to ride on donkeys, but while I think that claim is out there and sometimes it gets preached. Uh, passed on from one preacher to another, I can't find any biblical evidence or even extra biblical evidence to back it up. Now, it's true that, especially in ancient times, simply to ride was better than to walk. And all domestic animals were valuable, even donkeys. And it's true that horses were not very common in Israel. The hilly terrain was far more suited to the smaller donkey Or to the more sure-footed mule, the hybrid offspring of a donkey and a horse. And that's also why, if you'll notice the language, this verse is very specific. It says, a donkey, a young male donkey, the son of a female donkey. And that's to make sure you know this is a purebred donkey, not a mule, which would have been a donkey, the son of a, a horse. A mule. And so, though horses were not common, a king would have had access... And kings either rode in horses or chariots. Those were the animals of kings. Horses were far more grand, far more imposing, far more proud than donkeys. As we've seen, this is a different kind of king. I believe this is also likely a reference to a previous historical event. When David was fleeing from Jerusalem in shame during Absalom's rebellion... He was given a couple donkeys for him and his household to ride. Second Samuel sixteen one and two. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that he rode the donkey at the time, but it does seem appropriate that during this time, late in David's life, when he had lost his strength, when he was humiliated by the rebellion of his sons, that he rode a donkey. And of course, Jesus, he makes special preparations to make sure that he fulfills this prophecy. As he enters Jerusalem, that people recognized what he was doing. They saw him coming in on that donkey, and they recognized that he was fulfilling this prophecy. And so they saw how it lined up with King David. Even. And they began to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 21 9. They recognize him as the coming king. And they are rejoicing, they are shouting aloud, just as the Lord had called them to do in Zechariah chapter 9. Now, some of the Pharisees, they see this, they tell Jesus, Rebuke, to rebuke his disciples. And how does he reply? I tell you, if these were silent. The very stones would cry out, Luke nineteen forty. The king was coming at last, they had to shout and rejoice. But almost no one in the crowd that day, not even Jesus' own disciples, really knew why he was entering disciples, what he had truly come to do. Perhaps they picked up on the message of the humility of the donkey that clearly this wasn't a war leader riding in on a stallion to lead the troops out to conquer Israel's enemies. But how many really understood that he was headed to the cross, that this was how he would be saved in order to save his people. How many in this crowd who were shouting Hosanna would be shouting crucify him only a few days later. And of course, Christ's triumphal entry, even his crucifixion, it's not the end of the story. After he rises again, he begins his reign of peace. And that's what we see in the very next verse, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. On this verse, the Lord is saying that under their new king, his people will no longer need the traditional weapons of warfare. And so he removes them. He cuts them off. The Lord had always told his people not to trust in chariots and horses, but rather to trust in him, their God, to fight their battles. And now he's saying this new king comes to dismantle all the machinery of warfare. And instead, the king will speak peace to the nations. This is not just an absence of war, but a positive presence of peace. And this peace is the message of the gospel. The message that you can have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And so Christ he sends forth his disciples as ambassadors of peace to the nations with this message be ye reconciled to God 2 Corinthians 5:20 As this message goes forth his kingdom grows from the size of a tiny mustard seed into a large tree of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah 9, 7. And so it says he will reign from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And there will be people of every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation in Christ's kingdom. And he continues to reign even now as he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. His reign of peace. It goes on. Next we see the Lord's deliverance. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now here the Lord, he promises to deliver his people from imprisonment because of his covenant relationship with them. This reference to the blood of the covenant goes back to when Moses sealed the covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 8. The blood of a sacrifice was shed, it was sprinkled upon the people as they promised to obey the Lord. But here, I think the reference is not pointing backwards to that first sealing of the covenant, but rather pointing forwards to the next time that we see these words in Scripture. And that is at the Last Supper when Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was the sacrifice whose blood was shed to seal the new covenant for the remission of sins. For he came in order to set the captive free. And then the imagery used here is of a prisoner in a waterless pit, it's a reference back to Joseph, who was thrown into an empty cistern before he was sold by his brothers into slavery (Genesis 37:24). But Jesus says that He came to lead a second exodus out of Egypt, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor (Luke 4:18 through 19). And in verse 12, the Lord calls the prisoners who now have hope since they've been set free to return to their stronghold. And here I don't think this is a literal place but a person, the Lord, who is our refuge, who is our fortress, who is our stronghold. It says in verse 15, it says, the Lord of hosts will protect them. And the Lord promises today I declare I will restore to you Dammel. Since they've gone through this time of imprisonment, a time of lack and now we'll receive restoration, a double blessing. This makes us think of the story of Job. After he had lost everything, in his later years, he receives back his fortunes, but they are doubled. And it's the same idea here, but here I believe in a spiritual sense, a double blessing. And Of course, all this applies to all of you who have been set free from your sins by the blood of Christ. You were once a prisoner, without hope, without God in the world. And then Christ came. He rescued you from the waterless pit. And he calls you now to return to the Lord your stronghold. He pours upon you the double blessing. Next we see imagery of kingdom warfare followed by celebration and feasting. Verse, 16, verse 13 For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. As we come to these verses, there are two main ways to read them. Many take them as a reference to literal warfare, and so they must go back in time to before Christ came, before the coming of the king in verses 9 and 10. But I think a better understanding is that they are speaking about Christ's reign, It's using the language of warfare, but they're speaking of spiritual warfare and the advance of Christ's kingdom through the gospel. This actually makes better sense of the inclusion of Ephraim, the lost northern tribe, who was not a part of Judah, but is included in the church once all the nations are gathered in with the gospel. So verse 13, it speaks of this conflict between the sons of Zion and the sons of Greece, the Lord wielding Zion's sons as a warrior's sword. Even though the king has come and he speaks the message of peace to all the nations, it doesn't mean that there is now no more conflict. Christ said that the world will hate his disciples just as they hated him. And yet, still he sends us out like arrows shot into enemy territory. And we are called to make disciples of all the nations. We are fighting a spiritual battle. We are claiming ground, advancing the kingdom. But we do not wage war as the world does. We do not do it with chariot and horse and bow. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Second Corinthians 10:4 through5. We must put on the full armor of God, and we must wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6:17. And though we fight, we do not fight with hatred of our enemy in order to conquer them, but as the Lord taught, we love our enemies. We seek to love even those who persecute us with the hope that they will repent, that they too will put their faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, we also know that we never fight alone. Verse 14, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrows will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. You see this imagery here of the divine warrior, just like we saw at the beginning of the chapter last time. And here we just see how much we must always put our trust in the Lord. It's ultimately he who must win the battle. As it says at the beginning of verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them. Even as we enter the fray, we know it is the Lord who is our chief defender. In fact, Christ would never have sent out his disciples with a great commission if he could not have said, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. The verse of fifteen, it's a bit difficult to interpret, but it appears to describe a victory feast. Even as we go out into the world, as we're advancing the kingdom, the spiritual warfare, at the end of the day there is feasting and celebration. The feast begins with food, and they shall devour, or I think it's easier to see if you just translate it, eat, they shall eat and tread down the slingstones. The eating is compared to the way they overcome the sling stones of the opposing army. A modern comparison would be to stamping down bullets as they fly at you. Then after the food is followed by drink and they shall drink and roar as if if drunk with wine. Here it's not saying that they are drunk, but they are so jubilant in their celebration that it appears that way. It can be compared to the way that Outsiders on the day of Pentecost thought the disciples were drunk because they were praising the Lord in many languages. And then finally, after eating and drinking, comes being completely satisfied and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. This is imagery from the temple, the imagery of a sacrificial bowl being filled with blood and then the blood covering the four corners of the altar. I know it's a bit strange, the imagery here. But in the context of the Lord's arrival to fight on behalf of his people, I believe this is a picture of a victory feast, rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord. And that's also the closing note of the passage in the last two verses, a summary, really, of the whole passage. Verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. Here we see this familiar language of the Lord as our shepherd and his people as his flock. And the result of the Lord's salvation is that His people are radiant like shining jewels. As beautiful as the land of the Lord's creation is, the Lord's redeemed people shine out brighter than the land. This is how the Lord sees you, his beloved people. The bride of Christ for whom Jesus Christ laid down his life so that he might present you in splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish, Ephesians five twenty seven. And perhaps you recognize this language of shining like jewels in his crown from our baptism hymn, When he cometh. That hymn actually draws more heavily from another verse, Malachi 3.17, but it also lines up here with this verse in Zechariah chapter 9. And we close with praise to the Lord in verse 17, for how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. His salvation reflects not only his goodness, but his beauty. How beautiful is the Lord who does such wondrous things. And grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This closing line, it's a picture of the Lord blessing the young people, the next generation with such abundance that they flourish. You think back after starting imprisoned in a waterless cistern with nothing to eat, this blessing of plentiful grain and wine for the next generation, it shows the Lord's care for his people as a shepherd cares for his flock. The main theme of our passage this morning, it's a call to rejoice because your king is coming. But from our perspective, we have even greater reason to rejoice because we live on the other side of his first coming. We have already seen these prophecies fulfilled and we already experienced the many blessings stemming from the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ came as a different kind of king, not as a conqueror, but as a humble, suffering savior, he ushered in his kingdom of peace. And now as members of that kingdom, we see the kingdom has advanced and continues advancing to the very ends of the earth. We continue to fight in the spiritual battle, knowing that Christ is always with us and he will win the ultimate victory. And so rejoice, shout aloud, your king, has come, and he will return in glory on the final day, which is coming soon. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a humble king who came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. We thank you that he gave his life for us and for our sakes so that our sins have been dealt with and that we can come to you even now because of the finished work that he has done on the cross. We thank you that he is reigning and that we have peace with you because of what he has done. Lord, we thank you that you are always with us in the spiritual battle. And so we know that you are our protector and defender. Give us strength for any struggles that your people are in, even now, and strength for the week ahead that we might serve you. And we do pray and look forward to that second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do pray, come soon, come soon, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.